Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with me directly, you can always do so at MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. I see and answer every single contact personally, and I would truly love to hear from you. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot, and I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Joe Dusseldorf. Dr. Joe is a plastic surgeon based in Sydney and the founder of Synchricity. Dr. Joe believes the key to disruptive advancements in medicine will come from the combination of technology and cutting-edge clinical practice. His work is leading the way for children like Max, Harriet, and Sebastian to live fulfilling, healthy lives. Please welcome Dr. Joe Dusseldorp, passionate about solving the most difficult problems in plastic surgery and applying the best emerging technologies to advance medical treatments and improve clinical practice. I think one of the most exciting things about Breaking Brave is the guest's that lead to guests that lead to guests. So a few weeks ago, we released the episode for Luann Laurie Woods about breast reconstruction after her breast cancer surgery. And during that conversation, she talked about an incredible plastic surgeon and entrepreneur named Dr. Joe Dusseldorp. And I reached out and I said, I heard amazing things from Luann. And so here he is. Harry is to talk to us. Welcome to Breaking Brave, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Thanks for having me, Marilyn. It's really nice to talk to you. And yeah, it was really uh, talking to Luann in a very similar setting was was how we first uh, introduced ourselves to one another through uh, Instagram Live, actually. So it's, uh, yeah, not and now she's a podcaster with her own podcast. Yeah. She's someone who's uh, kind of really taken on that patient advocate role. Her podcast, obviously, I should call out to it, the Rewritten Me podcast, I think is something that women with breast cancer should definitely um, tune into. She's got some great, great insights and and uh, people she talks to. Incredible. And, and I was saying to her that I'm one of them, although I had a different kind of breast cancer than she did. So I didn't have to have the surgery. I had a lump out to me. Okay, wow. But she... In, it educated me about so much. And I would think that when I'm in that circle, if you will, of people that have gone through it, that I would know a little bit about this. I knew nothing. She's phenomenal. So thank you for, for joining us today. Um, is it okay if I just call you Dr. Joe? Sure. Absolutely. No problem. Okay. So Dr. Joe, just to level set for our audience, which is global, in your own words, who are you? <laughs> so I'm a reconstructive plastic surgeon. I work in Australia in Sydney. Um, I've had a bunch of different training to get me to this point. I was uh, initially trained as a plastic surgeon in Sydney, and then I traveled to France and to the United States to gain extra uh, specialty training in microsurgery and ear reconstruction is another thing that I do, uh, which is sort of different to what we're talking about today. But I've found myself on a real sort of pathway to try and help women who are suffering with or after mastectomy with reconstruction of the breast. Um, and that's something that is uh, 
is really a very meaningful work. I really enjoy it. I found that there's a lot of um, really interesting collaborative work with with patients as much with women um, that I really enjoy kind of hearing about what the problems are that they're facing and then trying to come up with solutions for those problems with, you know, with reconstructive surgical techniques. And um, yeah, it's something which, which I really enjoy. That's who I am. A huge passion from what I've understood. You come from a very long, long line of doctors. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that until my sort of my 20s. Um, I came, my grandfather had been a pediatrician, a, a, a child doctor, and uh, he had died when I was relatively young. So we never really got to know each other. And I didn't really understand much of his family's history until actually doing my own traveling and as a young adult and went and visited some of my ancestors in different parts of the world and kind of got to learn about this family history we have of you know, we're a very uh, a large line of doctors, particularly on my grandfather's side. He had, uh, he had, had eight of his father's bro- uh, uncles, so the, the two generations before him, eight of whom all of brothers had all become doctors in, uh, in Scotland. And uh, that was at the time a Guinness record, I think, for the most number of doctors in one one generation of any family, which I was like, wow, I know, how did I not know about this? You know, this is kind of <laughs> crazy to me. Um, but yeah, I guess these things, unless you keep them alive in family kind of folklore, they, they don't, they don't pass on. So yeah, it was great to learn that. And then I went and, um, came back and studied medicine after that. Of course you did. It, I mean, you had to. <laughs> it's I did a, feel a bit of a it, calling. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's in your DNA, whether, whether you recognized it or not. I would love to chat with you, Dr. Joe, about your collaborations between clinicians and biomedical engineers, that intersection of that fascinating work that you're doing right there. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So yeah, one of the um, amazing experiences I had in my training was to go to Boston and spend a year uh, working in a Harvard Medical School affiliated program um, at the Mass Ear, which is a great hospital in Boston, which focuses on um, cancers of the head and neck and, and reconstruction of, of some of those really complex problems that occur for people, particularly facial palsy. And I, I became kind of amazed about the, the innovation that was happening in the in sort of parallel fields to what I'd been working on in my training in Australia, but much more advanced. And those guys had in their team uh, an engineer. His name was Diego Guarin, and he was a biomedical engineer. He had this uh, just fascinating kind of different take on on what we were trying to do and what could be done electrically with you know electrical systems and different kinds of um, technology as opposed to we like to be a bit humble about what instruments we use as surgeons we say we use a knife and fork you know it's a kind of a a manual specialty we still suture things with with needle and thread as much as there's lots of technological advancement not many not much of it has made its way into the surgical actual daily use Um, it's happening slowly we have robots we have you know kind of laser we have different types of tools but in terms of how we, uh, as reconstructive surgeons, envisage you know the future, it's it's a bit manual still, and so I like the idea of digitizing our workflows. And to do that, you've got to have biomedical engineers. I don't have the skill set to be able to design an electrical system or to um, test you know these kind of complex solutions. But if you think about cochlear implants, something that people know about, or permanent pacemakers. Uh, being able to 
offset or supplement the um, the the role of hearing in someone who doesn't have that ability or how the heart beats in someone who has an irregular heart rhythm, we can use the similar systems in other parts of the body. And that's really uh, something that inspires me to want to try and translate some of this technological advancement into the reconstructive surgical field. Um, so that's where I need to interface with biomedical engineers as, uh, as teammates to do that. So let's jump to the subject of cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy, how I pronounce it. I think in Australia, it's likely cerebral palsy. Um, either way. I think most people I... just call it CP just to make it easy. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we don't have to worry about it. One in 300 live births babies are affected by cerebral palsy. One in three will never walk. And 17 million people suffer from CP worldwide. So specifically, I know there's an awful lot of work you're doing in the biomedical engineering piece, but specifically for this disease, single leading cause of disability in children. And as I was researching you and this subject, I had obviously we know about it. I didn't realize it was as massive as single leading cause of disability in kids. Yeah, and I didn't either. Um, it's, it's I, I suppose it's out there, but you're only exposed to it in very small doses, uh, unless you work in different circles or you, or you move in different circles. But it's definitely there. Um, I think uh, a lot of people just chin up and, and, uh, and deal with it. It's a condition. It doesn't affect the longevity of someone's life, um, but it does affect how they use their bodies, how they you know, can be independent. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people affected, not just the kids, who are born with the illness or the disease, but it's the, uh, the families that, you know, have to care for them. A lot of families, members, will, uh, parents will leave the workforce to care for their children with cerebral palsy. So that has a flow-on effect. You know, there's, there's, still, there's some benefits. Obviously, some, some families don't consider it a disease or, or an illness. It's just a, a functional limitation. But it is a significant one in many cases and something where it'd be great to have better solutions that could help these families, these kids to live their lives more fully and how they, more how they like to. Absolutely. And so, Dr. Joe, can you talk to us about what you're working on specifically for that with respect to spasticity and implants or rice, sort of grains of rice size implants that might be able to positively affect the spasticity? Okay, I knew I was going to screw up that word. <laughs> Spasticity, yeah. Spasticity. Think of of electricity. It's a spasticity. Um, Okay, great. Got it. It's a difficult word. It's a difficult problem. Um, And the the reason it occurs is because our brain no longer controls the reflexes that that make our muscles twitch. You know, if you or I put our hand on a a hot surface, our, our reflexes tell us to immediately pull our hand away without our brain really recognizing that that was hot. You know, you obviously feel it afterwards because you feel the burn on your skin, but at the time when your body reacted, that was well before your, your, your brain took any control. It was a reflex. And so those reflexes are really protective in, in most circumstances. But in, in someone who's had a brain injury, that's what cerebral palsy is. It's a brain injury that occurs very early on in, in a baby's life, sometimes before they even leave the womb. 
And that, that then um, unfortunately leads to these reflexes being out of whack and there being too much electrical activity in the muscles and unwanted electrical activity leads to tight muscles and over, over long periods of time, that can lead to really fixed flex joints and postures that are very difficult to you know, have an independent life with. If you've got really flexed arms and legs, it's hard to move around, it's hard to control your knife and fork, it's hard to wash yourself, it's hard to have, live you know, daily life without, without serious difficulties. And so how implants could help is a fascination to me. I don't have the answers yet. We're working on it. The idea is that we could do better to control this electrical imbalance um, and we could do it at a bunch of different levels. We could do it at the brain level, at the spinal cord level. We could do it at the junction between the nerve, peripheral nerve and the muscle. So the nervous system in the body is this amazingly beautiful tapestry of, of wires that travels throughout our bodies and we have no idea that it's in there, but it is. It's, you know, the anatomical diagrams you can Google show you all these uh, little yellow channels. Those are all electrical signals that, that pulse around our body continuously. And so we can interfere with these signals. We can put uh, electrodes in places that gives us control over these nerves that are um, out of whack and control the electrical impulses in a way that makes someone much more functionally competent to be able to do things they want to do. Control a mobile phone, for example, is a really, you know, something we take for granted, just the ability to send a text message. You know, how powerful is that? And we don't quite know how that's all going to go. We're still in a development phase, but I'm really positive, you know, the early signs from what we've done in, uh, in early experiments and from animal studies and also just in, on the computer simulations tells us that it should be pretty powerful. And you've won some some seed money and you've won some big idea challenges. On my wall, I've got, you won the Bionics Challenge 2022. You were the national winner in Australia, which gave you $30,000 towards this initiative and research that you're working on. And I've also got winning the big idea, which was some pre-seed funding for exactly what you're talking about. So hopefully all of that is going in the right direction to help you advance what you're working on. Yeah, we've, we've seen some great um, acceleration, I guess is the word, in terms of you know, what this kind of funding does is it gives you a, a, a kickstart. It also gives a bit of a profile. I think anyone who's developed a medical device would look at those sums of money and say, well, that's not going to go anywhere. Um, because it probably costs upwards of $30 million to develop a medical device um, from Wodica. And uh, we're not nowhere near that. But it's, uh, it's definitely uh, a start. And I think what gives us the opportunity to do is to move from proof of principle to proof of concept. Um, and that sounds like a, you know, sort of a contradiction in terms. But what it means is you kind of, first of all, need to demonstrate the, con- the principle. The principle of what you're trying to do is valid. And then you actually need to design the system to be able to demonstrate that it's feasible. And what, beyond that, the next steps are actually to then have a, a what's called a minimum viable product, which is an actual, you know, commercial term I'm becoming familiar with. You know, I, I put on two hats: one as a as a doctor, and the other as a medical device kind of developer. And so, learning learning a lot about this other field. Um, but once we have that kind of minimal viable product, we can then take it to to a clinical trial, and that would be that's that's still on the horizon for, you know, I think we're only 12 to, 12 to 24 months away from that. To get to that point, we need a lot more investment and funding, but it's it's achievable. So call out to all 
investment and funding opportunity people out there in the big world who are listening to this broadcast, to this podcast, to say, if this is a wonderful thing to invest in, which it absolutely is, then you need to connect with Dr. Joe so you can pour millions and millions and millions of dollars into what he's working on. We would happily uh, collaborate with anyone on this project. I think it's, um, it, it is that we have had some interest from sort of philanthropic groups, um, people affected by cerebral palsy. The Cerebral Palsy Alliance is an Australian organization that have given us some funding um, as well. And the, the, it's a, yeah, there, there is a group of people who, who really see the benefit of this. And it's something which, uh, yeah, we'd happily work with others as well. Perfect. Well, let's hope that this advances the cause a little bit further for you. Can we talk about the incredible work that you're doing with respect to ears? I'm fascinated in this. I, I don't know if you know Matt Botel and Free 3D Hands, but he he lives in Australia on Phillip Island and he 3D prints hands for children who either were not born with a hand or lost a hand in some sort of an accident or injury. And when I was reading about your ears and the patients' names I've got on the wall, all the kids that you're helping, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I had no idea that this was happening until I started doing a deep dive on this. Sure. So yeah, it's something which I, I th- was kind of the original um, sort of fascination for me that inspired me to pursue a career in plastic surgery was to see that a child could be born without an ear, um, which is a condition called microtia. It's not a very common condition. Um, it, it affects about one in 6,000 people. Um, so it's uh, you know less common than cerebral palsy, obviously. And it has a um, pretty profound effect on people. You know, it's something where particularly if you're only born with one ear and one kind of ear that's the same size as your mum and dad's and then one little tiny nubbin or, or an ear that never quite made it. And it cannot it can be associated with a hearing loss on that side in most cases. So you also are deaf in that ear for all intents and purposes. And then there's uh, some other asymmetries of the face that can occur as well with facial palsy sometimes and also just an um, overall small jaw on those on that side. So it's it's a it's a condition that is, is difficult for kids to deal with, particularly going to regular schools and trying to fit in. Um, and one of the the uh, yeah, exposures that I had during my training was to see a surgeon who is a great colleague of mine. Now we operate together quite often. His name is Nick Lotz, and I, I saw him reconstruct an ear for a child born without one. Um, and uh, yeah, at the end of one at the end of a, a relatively long surgery, I was able to see this ear kind of appear you know, carved by a surgeon and, and uh, it looked really lifelike and amazing. I was like, well, that's that's something worth investing some time into doing and being able to understand how to do that for people. And and that sort of started my journey. It's, it's, it's still ongoing. We're kind of still pushing forward with ways to do this better and better. And I think that when I first uh, was exposed to it, this type of technique involved taking some cartilage from the chest wall of, of a child, which is a painful thing to do to someone. It's not something that I was particularly, I didn't like that part of the procedure too much, but it gave us the material to then build the ear. And as I've um, sort of become more exposed to other techniques around the world, I've found that colleagues overseas were using 3D printing to make that shape of the ear rather than um, having to borrow tissue from from the chest wall. And it's uh, 
yeah, that's been a revelation to me because it not only can you achieve this ear shape that without you know having to damage the body somewhere, but you can actually also have a really lifelike mirror image replica of the other ear, which is really you know amazing. Obviously, when we when we were hand sculpting these these ears, uh, there was you know you, you could only be as as good as as your you know artistic eye or as good as the instruments that you have to do that work but with the, with this computerized process it, it really can be a mirror image and that was uh, something that we started in 2019 was a program to do that in Australia because it wasn't being performed here and uh, yeah we've I think there's something like 25 kids that have had this procedure in Australia so far so it's not a huge number but it's something that I, I know all of them and their parents by name and they're kind of you know dear to my heart there's a definitely um not an easy surgery. It's something that has taken me a long time to really still try to perfect and I'm still learning how to do that operation. And then we also are working now with engineers again to try to use 3D printed cartilage rather than 3D printed polyethylene, which is a plastic material um, that is a foreign material, which we currently use. There is there is a desire to be able to actually take the cells of one of our patients, grow those cells in the lab in a culture medium, and then use that to actually make the shape of the ear. And that's that's where my research is in that space, is trying to help that program to become a clinical, clinically meaningful solution to avoid using this foreign material. And we'll see, we'll see. I mean, this is a, a, yeah, a space that's super exciting. You know, the biomaterials and being able to use patients' own tissues um, is something that we're really in the early stages of, um, but we're starting to see that happening, not just in reconstructive surgery, but in other fields, this regenerative medicine and, and personalized medicine is becoming more and more the norm. And I think as, as time goes on, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Incredible. I didn't know about the tissues, the cells being taken from the patient as a, as a possibility. I only knew about the 3D printed options that you're, that you're using. Can you tell us the story of Sebastian? I think Sebastian went to a conference with you. Sebastian had was born with this condition, microtia. Am I right? He had one ear that was he was born with. The other one was not fully formed. That's right. Yes, Sebastian's a great kid. I met him when he was about seven years of age, um, and uh, his his parents, Carlos and Shirley, they um, found me. I didn't. Uh, I just returned from overseas. I'd done some training. Um, in ear reconstruction. And I, I, at this stage, a lot of Australian families were traveling to the United States for this operation because it was the only place in the world which was offering it. And the main reason that, that it wasn't really being offered was because the kids had to, they were quite young that were having this operation. And in Australia, we were still only using the, the own tissue technique, the rib graft operation, which you have to wait until the rib graft has really developed. So you can't do that before 12 years of age, roughly. And so at seven, you know, Carlos had noticed that Sebastian was already pretty, uh, I would say, reclusive. He was losing confidence. He was, he, he wrote this heart wrenching, not, not a book, but almost like a cartoon about how he was feeling about his ear. And he drew this, I'll never forget it. He drew this picture of an elephant with one really huge ear and one tiny little ear and just had these, um, uh, bucket sized raindrops coming down from its eyes. You know, because the elephant was sad and it was, you know, this kind of, you know, if you ever, I'm, I've got kids the same age now and it kind of breaks my heart, you know, see their, their drawings speak to their, their emotional state. 
And so his dad picked up on this and he was very um, cognizant that he needed to try and do whatever he could to help his son. And he, he was ready to, ready to sell the family home. And and, and, and uh, that was the kind of the, the amount of money that he needed to be able to go to the United States. And it's not just the surgery and the cost of the surgery, but all the travel and time overseas. And so it was going to be a huge imposition on uh, on him. And so when he found out about me, he uh, he said, you know, would you do this in Australia? You know, could you, is there a way we could ask you to do it? And I, I had that point, my whole sort of training to that point had been moving towards away from this kind of operation to the oldest, more old school surgery. And, uh, but hearing the story, I was like, well, yeah, as long as you understand the risks and benefits, you know, I, I can do it. And um, we we went ahead and it's, yeah, it's been a great operation for Sebastian. He has two ears that look really similar. Then, you know, it's not perfect. There's some slight differences, but he lives his life now without really worrying about his ear. He's got other problems, you know, he's, now he has to wear long socks to go to his high school and he has to, you know, you know like, like any other kid, you know, he's, uh, his dad really wants him to play soccer. He can't be bothered. Um, you know, he, he's, uh, he's, he comes from a great family and I know these guys really well now. And it's, uh, it's, it's great to see him just like any other kind of 12 year old kid now. He's not affected by his ear in, in the same way as he was as a, as a young boy. And Sebastian and his mom and dad came to a Hear and Share conference. Am I right when I say that? Hear and Say is the organization, yeah. Hear and Say, sorry. Um, that they that they made a bit of a presentation or people were able to meet Sebastian and talk to him. And he looks now like the most super confident kid. And yeah, if he's pushing back against soccer and, you know, life is definitely the way it was meant to be for him, thanks to you. I, I hope so. I mean, it's really, um, yeah, we're, we're still uh, talking with him about you know, ongoing little issues with his hearing and stuff. And he's, he did have a hearing device implanted, but as time goes on, hearing devices get more and more um, advanced. And so we may be going to do another little surgery for him. And, you know, these are lifelong connections. I don't think we ever do a surgery and then say goodbye to a patient with my crochet. You know, it's, like, it's something which... Um, There'll always be a connection there, which I like. It's good to um, be able to have that that longevity. Um, but yeah, I, I go back to Brisbane, where they're from, once a year, and we catch up and hear how he's going. And yeah, it's more. I'm more interested in what's happening with his school and his friends and his buddies. But you know, we we talk about uh, the year, obviously, and and everything. But yeah, it's a, it's um, still a medical device. I think everyone needs to realize that that it's not like a um, you can restore someone wholly to the way we were, but they were meant to be. And so with surgery, we always, you know, have to have a caveat there that there's there's potential for need to do future surgeries and touch-ups and revisions and things. But yeah, no, at the moment, he's he's doing great. I'm thrilled. And you mentioned briefly, you have three boys yourself, Dr. Joe. When I was looking at the research regarding you, the three boys under six or seven, but they've got to be older than that. How old are they? They Generally, how old are they now? Yeah, I've got, my oldest is 10. And the youngest is four, um, and they're, yeah, they're they're great. They keep me really they keep me really grounded. Um, they just want to be in like, you know in cahoots with everything I'm doing. They kind of I get home, and they're like, what what happened today? Who, who did you treat today? What, what's that? You know, they're really interested in in every little part of uh, my work, but equally uh, just want to tell me about their day as well. So it's, uh, they're really they're really active, engaged kids. Uh, I love them a lot. And so one of your sons with you made a video for 
one of your patients. I don't know if it was Sebastian or maybe it would, the patient's no, it name was, was, Ma- it was Max. Max. It was, Max. Yeah, it was Max. Yeah. And and your son was just adorable. Like, hi, Max. I'm wondering how things are going. And with the two of you in the frame, it was like, that's got to be something that meant the world to the recipient, to Max. Yeah, I think it's amazing. We we, um, we do try to catch up like with um, some of the patients, particularly the ones that, you know, the similar ages to my boys, we've had a, a um, opportunity. A lot of them come from interstate. So as a way to kind of make them feel more comfortable, we organize like a little play date the day before surgery with my kids and stuff. And it's um, it's a nice, you know, kind of, if the kids trust me, then they, they, the surgical experience is not as awful. And so part of my, my goal is to is to help them feel that connection. And it's hard when they're coming from another place. So yeah, we've done that for, for a while now. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great with, um, that was Max, who was the first kid going through this, which is a, obviously a, it was a difficult decision for his parents to go to, to make, to do it. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he knows my voice now. It's, uh, they've, they've met again a few times since. It's nice. I don't know if you know a Dr. Ben Bravery, the patient doctor, the author of The Patient Doctor. I've got a couple of people I've got to introduce you to. He's also Australian and has written this book. He was a patient who was diagnosed with cancer and has successfully beat it. But as a result of the care that he received, he then went into medical school and became a doctor. And the empathy and the sensitivity that you're describing around, I want the child, the patient to feel as comfortable as possible and trust me and really have a positive experience with the surgery is all about the humanity that he's working very hard to put back into medicine, not only in Australia, but but globally. So I will also make that introduction. Right. I'd love that. Dr. Joe, is it was Max, the the boy who said, please take a picture of my big ear and take a picture of the other ear because I'm so proud of what Dr. Joe has done and put those pictures on the wall of my bedroom. That, that, or was that a different, a different, no, a different that was Max, boy? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Max had to grow into what he's describing as his big ear. In other words, you were anticipating the growth of the child and therefore making the ear that you're creating for them a little bit bigger, perhaps, than the one they currently have, so that it all right. evens out in a way. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. You're dealing with a kind of a moving target um, in in the size of the um, of the healthy ear because it does change. Thankfully, most of the head and likewise the ear growth. You know, if you, if you look at little babies, their heads seem disproportionately large compared with their little bodies, and um, that's because a lot of the growth happens. In, in the head, uh, in the brain. Uh, obviously, the brain growth is, is exponential in the first two years of life. And so that, uh, yeah, the, the ears are pretty, pretty well formed, you know, by the age of about 12 or so. Um, so we, we aim to try and to get it right in those adolescent years. Obviously, they're also the most challenging years from, an, from a body image perspective as well. Um, but it's likely that because the, the, ear, the reconstructed ear won't change much in terms of size, it's likely that it'll end up being probably a little bit smaller in adulthood and um, later life. But that's a, that's a compromise that we have to kind of make and we obviously try and educate the families about that before we make the final decision on, on what size to make the year. And that leads me to two words that I have on the wall, 
the words being purely cosmetic. And is there a line or is there not a line when people say, is this a surgical procedure or is this a purely cosmetic procedure? Maybe you could talk to me about your views on that conversation. Yeah, I, I don't like those words, but I'll be honest. I think it's um, I think it trivializes what uh, surgery is, and particularly when um, you know, I think people mean well when they say that they, they're trying to understand. You know, is this something that will affect someone's function, or is this something that is just about how something looks? And you know, quite frankly, there's different types of function. You know, function can also be how we function in society, and I think. That is where a lot of even cosmetic surgery that you'll know from you know, television shows that's more about enhancing someone's chest size or you know, breast implants or nose jobs or whatever, which is, could be thought of as purely cosmetic, I suppose. But the reality is that that's still about how someone feels about themselves, what their self-confidence is, how they, how they uh, interact in the world. So it can have a profound impact, even things that are, you know, quote unquote, purely cosmetic. But in regards to what I do, I see it when we're doing breast reconstruction for women after breast cancer. People want to try and make light of the, the condition by saying, oh, will you get a free boob job or that you get something, you know, starting to, you know, and I don't think it's cruel. I think it's well-meaning, but I think it's misplaced because it does trivialize what someone's going through. And, uh, and I think that's not generally very well received. So I would kind of... Um, you know, for people who, who use that phrase, I would get them to try and rethink it and be a bit more empathetic and put themselves in that person's shoes and think, how would I feel if I had to have a mastectomy? Um, you know, it wouldn't be an easy decision. And I think certainly not um, something that you've ever, you know, quote unquote, looked forward to or lucky you, you know, that you've been able to have this, um, this operation. Having said that, I don't shy away from telling my patients that if they want to look better after breast cancer, and we want, you know, trying to enhance someone's appearance is not, it's not vanity, you know, because they've been through a lot. And, you know, if they want a breast lift or if they want to try and, you know, have the breast end up looking more youthful than they did before, that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. And that's where I think it, the lines get a bit blurry about what's purely cosmetic and what's really functionally meaningful. And so, yeah, I tend to shy away from those words. That's why I brought it up, because the whole mental health self-worth, sense of wholeness. I didn't, I've not met little Sebastian, but the idea that his parent would say he didn't like going to new places, he didn't like meeting new people, he was very kind of introverted. And then when you were able to give him his ear, now he's an out, much more outgoing, much more gregarious. And this, the sense of I fit in, I, I, there's a, a better improved sense of self-worth. I mean, absolutely. I don't think purely cosmetic is something that should be in our vocabulary at all because if it's meaningful to the human being who's making the decision about themselves, then that's their decision. And therefore, if it makes their life better, go for it. Yeah, I totally agree. So, Dr. Joe, what's next for you in terms of when you look out at the horizon and all of the things that you're working on? What's next for you? That's a great question. I don't really have a lot of time at the moment to look too far ahead. It's a bit of one foot in front of the other uh, at this stage. Um, maybe give me a minute. 
but yeah, no, it, it, there's, there's a lot happening where, you know, kind of um, fully engaged at the moment with both my surgeries and trying to push um, different research programs as, as a kind of a leader. I don't get too much into the trenches of, of um, writing any of these grant applications. I've got team members that I can kind of direct to do those things. So it's really putting ourselves out there for different opportunities and then reacting to those. You know, you, you don't get every grant that you apply for. So the ones that you do get kind of propel you down different avenues um, because you suddenly have the resources to do that work, you know, in, in preference to other work you've been working on. So a little bit is, you know, what doors open as we, as we progress. So I tend to just follow that, follow the, you know, the kind of the overarching passion, which is to kind of you know, bring these innovations into reality. And obviously I really love my day-to-day work, which is to perform surgeries and have that impact at the individual patient level as well. So I'm busy doing that too. It's busy. It's very busy next next phase. And a dad, um, a husband and a dad <laughs> for three young boys. And yeah. yeah, like what's next? It's like, please, Marilyn, what else can I possibly put on my plate at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's keep keep head above water, keep going, and then uh, and then possibly take a deep breath in uh, in a few years' time. Um, because Excellent. we we took a good holiday this year with with my family. We kind of you know carved out a good chunk of time and went away together. That was really really good. And we all enjoyed that. So we'll no doubt try to um, keep that. It possibly won't be as big a holiday because that really, um, it really was a great sort of um, uh, moment. We took a, a whole month off together and uh, it was, that was wonderful. But I don't think we'll be doing that every year, but at least a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, that, that I, I really enjoy those holidays. But I've been trying to do more like, it's funny, my kids are getting to an age where they can get up a bit earlier and do some exercise with me in the mornings. And that's been wildly successful. I really enjoyed having those moments to, to interact, considering when they were a bit younger, it was kind of leaving before they woke up and getting home after they were asleep. So that, that wasn't great. Um, so I'm enjoying this phase of uh, being able to connect with them you know, on a daily basis. And it will be interesting to see how we go as they get in their t- into their teenage years. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to keep, the, keep that uh, as front of mind as, as my work. Excellent. Synchronicity is your company? I mean, aside from all the things that you've you've just mentioned, is that the 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 company that you've founded that is looking at the creation of the medical devices? Am I yeah. correct with that? Yes, yes. Synchronicity, we call it, which is the synchronicity. Uh, my apologies. Yeah. I know synchronicity is a better is a real word. Synchronicity is a made up word. But the uh, the idea is that we're trying to. Um, you need to have an entity um, when you have a, a medical device that sort of holds the IP, holds the um, investment capability. So that's what that's for. It's something which I'm a novice at and I'm very happy to you know, admit it. Um, but we are trying to bring in very clever people. We've just got a, a great uh, team member in the last few months who's who's got a track record of of doing this, bringing a, a medical device to the marketplace uh, successfully. Um, Paul Carboon is his name, and he's, he's uh, just a breath of fresh air for me to have someone who knows how to, how to do that. Um, and we've um, been blessed to have He's essentially looked at the program and said, this is something that I, I would like to be involved with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just finding like-minded people and surrounding ourselves with that same uh, mission-driven group of people I think will make this work. So yeah, that's what the company is there for and that's what uh, its goal is. 
How can people get a hold of you, Dr. Joe, follow you, support you, send you millions and millions of dollars to make all your dreams <laughs> and your innovations come true? This is the pure call out for how can they find you, social media or otherwise? So, yeah, I'm on um, every, if, you, if they look up, there's not too many Joe Dusseldorps around. Um, so they can find me on on uh, any platform. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a website, which is joedusseldorp.com. We have a YouTube channel, which is not very big yet, but that's something we're planning to you know, increase our, um, our education stuff through that. Uh, but those are probably the main channels I would, I would use. And then, uh, yeah, obviously, I'm happy to reach out to them through the company as well. So that's joe at synchricity.com.au. So the, the, but yeah, they can easily um, uh, reach out to any of those, those uh, sites and we'll, we'll filter it through to the right, the right landing page. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And what does bravery mean to you, Dr. Joe? I think it's a good question. I, I, I think I see bravery all over the place in what I do. Yeah, I just even I was just thinking even yesterday about some of the patients I met yesterday who are living who are living with breast cancer and having to make you know really complicated decisions about their health care. Um, the immediate one that comes to mind is women who have high risk breast cancer that maybe have had lots of family members who've had the condition and then, uh, you know, faced with this decision of whether or not to get genetic testing. And then when they do get genetic testing, what are they going to do about it? You know, that that's an extremely um, difficult situation to be in. And I think there's a difference between living with fear and living with bravery. I think to me, uh, I see a lot of value in having some, having a, a, um, a view on the world that is, that is brave, that is bold, that is empowered, and, and then the opposite of that is, is where I, I meet some people who are living in, in, as a bit of a shadow in fear or, you know, in, in shame. And I think that's where what I can do can help people to kind of take that um, empowered step. But it is a partnership. You know, it's not something that, that can be done just with a, with a knife and fork. Like I was saying before, it's not a, a manual task. That's a mental task. And so that's where I think that the, the bravery is key. Thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing to change the world and to change the lives of all people. Thank you for all the effort you put into reading and then learning about the work that I'm doing. You obviously um, are across everything. There is um, one resource that maybe I'd shout out to that I think uh, you know it does reflect what I'm working on, which is still, which is a bit of an old resource, but that's the TED Talk that I did. So if people were interested to view that, it's a few minutes, but it's uh, TEDx talk if they google my name and tedx they find it but it, it um sort of speaks to uh, it's a it's a few years old now so it's interesting we're kind of already um making some advancements on what what i was working on in 2019 it was just before covid that we, that we did that tedx talk but yeah that would be the only thing that i would um yeah encourage people to have, a, have an engagement with and uh no it's been been great thank you and i watched it and it is amazing so thank you for calling that out Thank you, Dr. Joe. I I can't wait to hear more, and I can't wait to introduce you to some of these other lovely, incredible doctors in Australia that I've had yeah. the privilege of me- meeting, because you guys are changing the world. So thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you so much for listening. For updates between episodes, I'd encourage you to join my mailing list, which you can do at either MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. 
At most once a month, at least once a quarter, you'll receive an update on the latest resources, topics, and information I've found either super helpful or amazingly impactful. That's it for now. See you next time.